Welcome to the April 29th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will review a study that focuses on the morphological alterations of stored red blood cells. Learn more about how T-cell activation profiles distinguish hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis and early sepsis. And finally, look at a report that describes how the Wnt signaling pathway is involved in sclerodermatous chronic graft-versus-host disease and can be blocked by available therapeutics. Our first topic is a study entitled Rapid Clearance of Storage-Induced Microerythrocytes Alters Transfusion Recovery by Camille Roussel, Alexandre Morel, Michel Dussault, Pierre Bouffet, and Pascal Amereau from centers including INSERM, Imagine Institute, and the Université du Paris in France, and their colleagues. As summarized by Angelo D'Alessandro from the University of Colorado, Denver, in his accompanying commentary, red blood cell, or RBC, storage, is a logistic necessity in order to provide the more than 100 million units that are transfused annually worldwide. Unfortunately, with storage of RBC concentrates up to 42 days, their quality degrades over time, and they accumulate multiple molecular alterations collectively referred to as the storage lesion. Under refrigerated storage conditions, RBC proton pumps fail, energy metabolism progressively deteriorates, and oxidant stress increases, thereby overwhelming intracellular redox systems, ultimately resulting in the accumulation of irreversibly oxidized proteins, metabolites, and lipids. Mechanisms are available in mature RBCs that help eliminate irreversibly oxidized components in vesicles. This can negatively affect RBC morphology, resulting in a progression from the classical discocyte to echinocyte, then spheroechinocyte, and when membrane shedding is extreme, the spherocyte. Together, these cells are referred to as storage-induced microerythrocytes, or SME, and account for 20 to 25% of the entire RBC population after six weeks of storage. Although the timeline of these phenomena is well-established, their clinical relevance remains unclear. In this study, Roussel and colleagues focus on the morphologic alterations of stored RBCs and their impact on the ability of SME to circulate after transfusion. The minimum requirement for the physiological function of transfused RBCs regarding oxygen transport. More specifically, they assessed whether the proportion of SME and stored RBC concentrates correlates with post-transfusion recovery in healthy volunteers. They also investigated the fate of SME during ex vivo perfusion of human spleens, as well as in a specifically developed murine model. Converging results obtained in human subjects and mice confirmed that SME are rapidly cleared after transfusion through predominantly spleen and macrophage-related mechanisms. In healthy human volunteers, High proportions of SME in long-stored RBC concentrates correlated with poor transfusion recoveries. When perfused through human spleens, 
15% and 61% of long-term stored RBCs and SME were cleared in 70 minutes respectively. High initial proportions of SME also correlated with high retention of RBCs by perfused human spleens. In the mouse model, SME accumulated during storage. Transfusion of long-stored RBCs displayed reduced post-transfusion recovery that was mostly due to clearance of SME. Following transfusions of mice, long-stored RBCs accumulated predominantly in the spleen and were ingested mainly by splenic and hepatic macrophages. In macrophage-depleted mice, splenic accumulation and the clearance of SME were delayed, and transfusion recovery was improved. In healthy hosts, SME were cleared predominantly by macrophages in the spleen and liver. When this well-demarcated subpopulation of altered RBCs was abundant in RBC concentrates, transfusion recovery is diminished. Quantifying SME therefore has the potential to improve blood product quality assessment. In the future, quantifying SME could be a surrogate measure for transfusion recovery when assessing promising alternative storage solutions, new manufacturing processes, or donor-related factors that contribute to storage quality. Such innovations could reduce or abrogate the transfusion of lower-quality products. This has potential benefit for chronically transfused patients, such as those with sickle cell disease, thalassemia, or myelodysplastic syndrome, in whom improved transfusion recovery would be expected to decrease the degree of iron overload. As D'Alessandro points out, there was substantial interdonor variability in the end-of-storage proportion of SMEs in individual blood units. This variability may reflect heterogeneity in molecular and or metabolic markers of storage quality. In turn, this may relate to one or more factors, such as donor biology, donor habits, xenometabolites from dietary or other exposures such as medications, and also processing strategies of individual units. Thus, molecular or metabolic age, rather than chronologic age of the individual unit, may be just as clinically relevant. These data also provide a platform for future studies that examine how the oxidant stress that promotes SMEs is applicable in the context of other stresses to erythrocytes, such as hemoglobinopathies, acute or prolonged exercise, high-altitude hypoxia, aging and inflammation, and infections. Lastly, these findings should foster further investigation of the linkage between altered erythrocyte physiology and remote organ injury and inflammation. Our next study is a manuscript entitled T-Cell Activation Profiles Distinguish Hemophagocytic Lymphohistiocytosis and Early Sepsis by Vandana Chaturvedi and Michael Jordan from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in Ohio, and their colleagues. Cytokine storm, or CS, refers to a pathological inflammatory state in which acute immune activation may be more harmful than helpful in the natural immune response. CS is recognized in a variety of conditions, including sepsis, severe viral infection, such as dengue virus and now SARS-CoV-2 infection, acute graft-versus-host disease, immune-activating therapies, 
and a variety of intrinsically inflammatory conditions, such as hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or HLH. This array of conditions, and the exquisitely adaptable nature of the immune response, suggest that the term CS loosely refers to highly diverse forms of inflammation. As Melissa Hines and Kim Nichols from St. Jude Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, cite in their accompanying commentary, there is growing recognition of the phenotypic overlap between HLH and sepsis, with some sepsis patients being described as having features of HLH, or macrophage activation syndrome. However, phenotypic mimicry should not imply pathobiologic similarities. Defining the distinct aspects of immune activation in each instance of CS is likely to be important for tailoring more effective therapies for these conditions. HLH, an immune regulatory disorder characterized by episodes of acute immune activation, is variably associated with infections and other triggers. Defects in the genes involved in lymphocyte cytotoxic function underlie many, but not all, cases. Irrespective of its ideology, patients with HLH exhibit excessive and harmful inflammation, widely viewed as a prototypical CS. Patients with HLH may present with a sepsis-like appearance, confounding accurate diagnosis. The clinical similarities between patients with HLH and those with sepsis have led some to propose that the underlying inflammatory processes may be similar. While experimental evidence suggests that HLH is driven by T-cell activation, immune profiling in patients with sepsis has mostly focused on monocytes, and studies examining T-cell profiles are generally sparse with mixed results. Though patients with HLH have been described as having increased T-cell activation, comparisons to sepsis or other highly inflamed states have not been described. To address these knowledge gaps and further differentiate the immune pathology underlying sepsis and HLH, the authors profiled T-cells from patients with well-defined HLH or sepsis and found highly divergent phenotypes, allowing for ready discrimination of these disorders with particular focus on CD38, the marker that arguably has been shown to be most useful for identifying recently activated T-cells in humans. T-cell profiles were examined based on samples obtained from patients with sepsis or HLH, and control samples were collected from de-identified children without known infections. They found that HLH is characterized by acute T-cell activation, in clear contrast to sepsis. Activated T-cells in patients with HLH were characterized by CD38-high HLA-DR-positive effector cells with activation of CD8-positive T-cells being most pronounced. Activated T-cells were polarized toward TC1-TH1 differentiation, were proliferative, and displayed evidence of recent and persistent activation. Circulating activated T-cells appeared to be broadly characteristic of HLH, as they were seen in children with and without genetic lesions or identifiable infections, and resolved with conventional treatment of HLH. Additionally, they observed even greater activation and type 1 polarization in tissue-infiltrating T-cells, described for the first time in a series of patients with HLH. Finally, they observed that a threshold of greater than 7% CD38-high HLA-DR-positive cells among CD8-positive T-cells 
had both a strong positive and negative predictive value for distinguishing HLH from early sepsis or healthy controls. Chaturvedi and colleagues concluded that the cytokine storm of HLH is characterized by distinctive T-cell activation, while sepsis is not, and that these two syndromes can be readily distinguished by T-cell phenotypes. The authors noted three limiting factors of their study. First, though 19 patients with severe sepsis were included in the study, the sample size was not sufficient to search for small subsets of sepsis patients that may have had physiology more similar to HLH. Second, the HLH cohort did not include patients with HLH secondary to rheumatologic conditions or malignancy, or adults with HLH. Third, although they identified a threshold for distinguishing HLH and sepsis via T-cell activation parameters, this finding cannot yet be considered a clinically actionable assay. However, Validating a flow cytometric assay which characterizes T-cells in such patients could lead to earlier therapeutic intervention. In light of this study's findings, Heinz and Nichols ponder how providers should align the broadening knowledge of disease pathophysiology and therapeutic options when confronted with a patient presenting with hyperinflammation with unclear etiology. Looking to the future, They argue clinical trials should be designed to produce strong clinical outcome data linked to robust immunologic biomarkers to inform underlying disease pathophysiology and selection of the best targeted therapies. Our final topic today is a study entitled Targeting of Canonical Wnt Signaling ameliorates experimental sclerodermatous chronic graft-versus-host disease by Yun Zhang and Jörg Distler from University of Erlanger-Nuremberg in Germany and their colleagues. Chronic graft-versus-host disease, or CGVHD, is a major life-threatening complication of allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. GVHD is caused by an impaired tolerance associated with donor T-cell recognition of polymorphic histocompatibility antigens in host tissues, resulting in chronic inflammation and subsequent profound structural remodeling of affected tissues. While effective therapies are available for the treatment of acute GVHD, therapeutic options for CGVHD remain limited, and this contributes significantly to non-relapse mortality after allogeneic transplantation in affected patients. Sclerodermatous CGVHD is a highly morbid complication of allogeneic transplant, affecting the skin, fascia, lung, and other organs. It is associated with impaired quality of life and physical functioning, and is particularly resistant to treatment. Histologically, Sclerodermatous CGVHD is characterized by accumulation of collagen and other components of the extracellular matrix, resulting in progressive tissue fibrosis. The deposition of extracellular matrix is caused by activation of fibroblasts. In response to profibrotic mediators released from infiltrating leukocytes, resting fibroblasts differentiate into myofibroblasts, that express contractile proteins and release abundant amounts of extracellular matrix. The molecular mechanisms that bridge inflammation and aberrant fibroblast activation 
to induce virotic tissue remodeling in sclerodermatous CGBHD remain poorly understood. Increasing evidence points to a key role of deregulated Wnt signaling in the pathogenesis of fibrotic diseases. In this study, the authors could indeed demonstrate that canonical Wnt signaling is activated in human and murine sclerodermatous CGVHD. Activated Wnt signaling in human samples was characterized by increased nuclear accumulation of the transcription factor beta-catenin and a Wnt-biased gene expression signature in lesional skin. Relevant to potential clinical use, the authors used three small molecule inhibitors of the Wnt pathway with different modes of action. These include the highly sensitive tankerase inhibitor G007LK, already being evaluated in cancer clinical trials. The casein kinase 1 alpha agonist, pyrvinium, already approved for the treatment of pinworms. And the LRP6 inhibitor, selenomycin an antibiotic used in veterinary medicine. Treatment with these agents almost completely prevented the development of clinical and histological features of sclerodermatous CGVHD in two different murine models without a significant impact on graft versus leukemia. Biologically, inhibition of canonical Wnt signaling reduced the release of extracellular matrix from fibroblasts and reduced leukocyte influx. These findings suggest that Wnt signaling stimulates fibrotic tissue remodeling by direct effects on fibroblasts and by indirect, inflammation-dependent effects on sclerodermatous CGVHD. In her accompanying commentary, Stephanie Lee from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle points out the exciting therapeutic potential of these findings for the unmet need of sclerodermatous CGVHD. However, as the Wnt inhibitors were only tested in the prevention setting, it isn't clear if fibrosis is reversible once established or whether continuous treatment is needed. Nevertheless, this study provides preliminary justification for designing clinical trials for early treatment for sclerodermatous CGVHD to prevent disabling complications. A long-term prophylactic approach would be less palatable as this would require long exposure and overtreatment of many patients. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.